Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Well, good morning. Um, I retired a month ago. Uh, I haven't yet gotten into the rhythm of what retirement looks like. Uh, I've, been, I've been more busy uh, this last month than, than in the 45 years of ministry that I've been involved in. And uh, I'm assigned uh, James chapter 2. It's a controversial chapter. So, thank you for giving it to me. <laughs> I, I would have liked chapter 4 or chapter 5. Um, but ever since James penned this, uh, this chapter, uh, there's been controversy. This is a chapter that gives us the shape of the Christian life. The Christian life has a shape. It has contours. When I was a seminary student in the 70s, I studied at uh, RTS in Jackson, Mississippi. I was 22 years old. I met the president of RTS at a conference in England, and I'd never heard of RTS, but I wanted to go to seminary, and I wanted to go to a good seminary. And I met him in April at a conference, and this is before email and text messaging. So about three weeks later, I got a letter in the mail. Um, offering me a scholarship, an international scholarship to come from uh, the UK where I resided and uh, to come to Jackson, Mississippi. All I knew about Mississippi was I'd read Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn in high school, and it hadn't changed much. In the mid-70s, some of you will remember, some of you will not, but uh, there was a controversy uh, called Easy Believism. And uh, John MacArthur uh, rose to the surface. He was a young man then, and uh, he, was, uh, he was the David versus the Goliath of Easy Believism. And uh, I was... I was with John MacArthur just a few weeks ago, and uh, what an extraordinary ministry he's had. And he's now in his early 80s and still um, faithful, still preaching uh, every week. Now, Easy Believism was a movement, and, and it, it has been around ever since, well, ever since James penned this letter, that you can you can accept Jesus, you can become a believer, you can, you can sign up for the gospel, but live like the devil. 
and still get into heaven. Well, not according to James. This chapter is famous because it pits James against the Apostle Paul. Because according to Paul, we are justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. That's, that's a basic tenet of the gospel, that we are reckoned to be righteous in Christ apart from any works of our own. But James is going to say something quite extraordinary. He's going to say that Abraham, our father, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What sort of Bible is this? I, I, want, to, I want to send this Bible back to Crossway. It's an ESV Bible. I want to send it back to Crossway and get my money back. Because that verse seems to be totally contrary to the gospel. Well, we need, to, we need to get into tune with James. This is James, the Lord's brother, half-brother. James would have grown up in the same house in Nazareth. He would have probably slept in the same bed. Mary and Joseph were relatively poor, blue-collar. Their home would have been modest, for sure. Uh, the Gospels speak of Jesus' brothers in the plural and sisters in the plural. Now, because of the perpetual virginity of Mary, Roman Catholics have a different view of this. These are cousins, but, but I'm, I'm okay with these being, being um, Joseph's progeny. So there, if, there, if there are sisters and brothers, there are at least seven people in this house. And James was one of them. And James was a man with a lot of clout. You know, if you can say in a conversation, you know, Jesus is my brother. I mean, li li literally. I mean, I know Bill Jones, but I can't say, you know, he's my brother. That's a conversation stopper. You know, if you're having an argument over something and you, and you just drop, you know, Jesus is my brother. You know, I, I grew up, I've known him for over 30 years. I can tell you stuff about Jesus when he was 10 or 12 or 15. That's a conversation stopper. Do you remember in Galatians 2 when Peter had that moment when he stopped eating with the Gentiles because the men of James had come up from Jerusalem? The men of James. Jerusalem was 
largely made up of Jewish Christians. And Jewish Christians with um, inbred attitudes towards the law and the Torah. And the Jerusalem church was relatively poor. You remember that Paul spent at least two years trying to raise money from Gentile churches to send to Jerusalem. It was probably a political strategy on Paul's part. It didn't work if that was so. The Jerusalem church were suspicious of what Paul was doing with the Gentiles. So he begins this chapter with the sin of partiality, favoritism. Before we get into the justification by faith and justification by works issue, he begins with an example. And he begins with the issue of favoritism, paying attention to one class of people over another. Well, let's put it in a modern context. First Pres has a member who's probably the most successful car dealer in the state of South Carolina. He's a wonderful man, a godly man, but he's, uh, well, he's got a lot of dosh. Dosh is a British term for money. He's a wealthy man, and he's a very generous man. So, uh, you have him, and then you have, um, I need to be circumspect and careful here, but you have someone who's um, poor, Um, the deacon's fund have helped this person on more than one occasion, and they never know when to stop talking. So, if you're at the door and you see this person coming, you do everything possible to avoid eye contact. Because if you make eye contact, you're going to be there for 20 minutes. And it's not a two-way conversation, it's a one-way conversation, and, and you just have to listen and be polite. So, who do I, who do I give my affection to? The rich guy? or the person at the door who doesn't stop talking. Um, favoritism, partiality. I, I suspect in a modern context, it's, um, it's the issue of race, showing attention and affection to one class of people rather than another. Now, we need to be um, careful as to how we define favoritism. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. Show no favoritism. Now, favoritism is different from friendship. Jesus said, friends, 
close friends. John was his closest friend. I, 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 I don't know how John keeps referring to himself in the gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. You know, when you say it the first time, you, you sort of, okay. But when you read it for the eighth or ninth time, you think, John, come on. But he was just telling it like it is. He was, he was Jesus' close friend. And then Jesus had Peter, James, and John. He had the three. And then he had the twelve. And then he had everybody, you and me. So we have friends. We have close friends. But that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about, well, look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Judges with evil thoughts. So this partiality has sin involved in it. Intentional snobbery. Avoiding certain people or a certain class of people. James is asking the question, what does authentic Christianity look like? Listen, my beloved brothers, verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? The early church, particularly in Jerusalem, was poor. You know, if you were a, a Jewish widget maker, you had a store on Main Street in Jerusalem and you sold widgets, and then you become a Christian, your fellow Jews would no longer come to your store. They would ostracize you. So the early church in Jerusalem was poor. And God calls the poor. Do you remember what Paul says in, Cor in Corinthians? Not many mighty, not many of noble birth. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. And that's true. It's true today, globally. You know, there's first prayers downtown, but that's, that's, not, that's not what the church looks like globally. Not in Latin America, not in Southeast Asia, where the church is largely poor. The gospel comes to those who are poor. Think of the dying thief. What did he have? He had nothing. And today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said. What James is saying here is that when you have Jesus, you have everything. It's the message of Colossians. Paul uses the word pleroma, uh, fullness. When you have Jesus, you have fullness. You have everything. You can be the poorest man in the world, but if you have the gospel... If you have Jesus, you have everything. 
So this partiality is a reflection of the gospel, because the gospel comes to those who have nothing. We can offer nothing. Not all our doing, not all our works, nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's the shape of the gospel, isn't it? Comes to those who can offer God nothing. So when you show partiality, you're doing something that is opposite to the gospel. The rich were exploiting Christians. Verse 6, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? That's James's assessment of first century Jerusalem. Now, in verses 8 and 9, he talks about the rich and the law. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Talks about the law, the Torah. And he quotes, and this is a verse that Jesus quotes more than once in the Gospels from Leviticus 19 and verse 18, to love your neighbor as yourself, that the whole law is summarized by loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. He's giving a lesson in biblical ethics, how do we live the Christian life? What is the shape of the Christian life? And the Christian life is shaped by a love for God's law. When you become a believer, when you trust in Jesus Christ, you come to love His law, the royal law. It's the law of the King. It's the law of King Jesus. James is reflecting here something that Jesus taught, and, and I often think about James. James often sounds like the Sermon on the Mount, because that's the shape of the Christian life. He learned it from his brother. Jesus, who told the parable of the Good, Samarit good Samaritan, and the parable of the Good Samaritan is not how to identify who is your neighbor. That's not the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is how can you be a good neighbor? And so a man goes to Jericho, is robbed and beaten and left at the side of the road half dead, and a priest comes and passes him by, and a Levite comes and passes him by, and a Samaritan, with whom the Jews had absolutely no social contact whatsoever. 
a Samaritan comes and shows compassion and books him in at Holiday Inn Express and leaves a couple of hundred dollars and tells the manager to take care of him? Which of the three proved to be a neighbor? Was it the priest? No. Was it the Levite? No. Was it the Samaritan? Yes. And James adds, if you break one part of the law, you break the whole. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. I went to a, a murder trial one time in Oxford in England. I was, uh, uh, I was a, an intern at a church in Oxford for a year, and I uh, went to this trial murder trial. It was all over the news in the newspapers. And I thought it would be interesting to go and sit in the gallery and, uh, for a day and just watch what, what was going on. And uh, it was the day of the sentence. And he was convicted of murder and sent to prison for the rest of his life. But I imagined him saying, you know, it's a trial, and there was uh, DNA evidence and credible witnesses, and uh, there was a a CCTV camera evidence and, and so on. The man was guilty. And I imagined him uh, standing up and, and pleading with the judge, you know, I killed him. I confess, I, I killed him. But I've been faithful to my wife all my life. <laughs> so I deserve to get off. If you're Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. That's the conclusion. So speak and so act, verse 12, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Interesting that James would call it the law of liberty. You know, we live in a post-pandemic world, and uh, people are triggered Lots of people are triggered. And uh, well, people would ask me during the pandemic, you know, we're, First Presbyterian is a big church, so, so we weren't able to do some of the stuff that we were supposed to be doing. It just wasn't feasible, wasn't practical. And uh, I noticed, I noticed that uh, session meetings, that's, that's the elders, 48 elders, um, everyone was triggered. Everybody now has an opinion, and they want you to know what that opinion is. And uh, they would ask me, what do, you, what do you think about COVID? And you know, I would say, are you kidding? You, you, expect, you, you think I'm going to tell you what my opinion is? I, I'm just trying to get through this. The law of liberty. When you love Jesus, he tells you how to live. And it liberates you. It gives you a shape. It gives you an identity. Everybody today has an identity crisis. They don't know what gender they are. 
They don't know what they're supposed to do. They don't know who they are. But when you have Jesus, you know who you are. And the law sets you free. It's not a burden anymore. These are not chains. These are not shackles. They are guidelines as to how to live for Jesus. And what James is setting you up for here is that obedience is the sign that you have been saved. Obedience is the sign that you have been saved. Now, in the second half of James chapter 2, from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, he tells you how faith, true saving faith, works. And he begins with a question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. If you say that you have faith, but there's no lifestyle that goes with that faith, it's not true faith. It is something else. That's the question that James sets up for you. And he sets it up in such a manner that he expects you to say, no. Does, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, right? He says he has faith. I've known too many people, close friends of mine, officers, in the church who said they had faith and they walked away and never came back. My uh, wife's best friend in college, she, was, uh, she said she had faith. I can still hear her praying. This is 50 years ago. And on the eve of graduation, a father who was militantly opposed to evangelical Christianity told her in our hearing that if she walked away from the faith, he would buy her a house. And she walked away. That was 50 years ago. We have kept in touch. We've had a dozen of us have met with her, had lunch with her. She lives in, in my hometown. She walked away. And I could tell you of dozens of others who've done the same. They said they had faith. But there were no works to evidence and prove that faith. It's easy believism. That's what, that's what James is talking about here. Somebody who walks down the front, meets with an evangelist, signs a piece of paper. The evangelist gives him an assurance. Once saved, always saved. And then they live like the devil. Is that true faith? Is that saving faith? 
I was at a funeral one time, and uh, it, was, it was one of those terrible funerals that you have to do because this man had professed faith. He had walked the line. He had given his life to Jesus, but his life was, was horrible, horrible. And his, uh, one of his relatives came up to me and, and said, um, he's going to be okay, right? And I said, what do you mean? Well, w- w- when he knocks on the gate of heaven, he'll, he'll, he'll be let in, right? What is a man to say? When faith comes, when true saving faith comes, when genuine faith comes, it comes as a package. Because when you trust in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. If any man be in Christ, well, the Greek doesn't have the verb to be. We, we, we insert, he is a new creation. But the verb to be is, isn't there in the Greek. If any man be in Christ, new creation. You're not what you once were. You have a new heart, a new mind, a new will, new affections. And they will manifest themselves. Not perfectly. It's a struggle. The good that I would, I do not. And the evil that I would not, that I find I do, a wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Yes, it's a constant struggle. But the new creation will prevail. The problem with this man is not the lack of good works. The problem with this man is a lack of true faith. James is reflecting something that Jesus said towards the end of his ministry. Not every person who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus, Jesus, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And do you remember what Jesus says? It's a, it's a, it's a chilling statement. When they knock on the gates of heaven and they say, Jesus, Jesus, what will Jesus say? I never knew you. Depart from me. This man says he has faith, but there are no works. Now, in verses 18 and 19, he gives you a little explanation. Someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So this person who says he has faith, but no works, he's orthodox. He believes God is one. He says the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. Behold, the Lord your God is one. He can say the Apostles' Creed. He can repeat the Lord's Prayer. He's orthodox. He's not a heretic. But he's lost. He's not a believer. He doesn't have true faith. Now, James uses two illustrations. 
from two of the great figures of the Old Testament. One is Abraham, and one is Rahab, the harlot. So, in verse 21, he says, "'Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar.'" You know, I have to say, if I was writing this epistle, I wouldn't have put it that way. Every instinct in my body says, I, I cannot say he was justified by works. And uh, this is where Martin Luther in the Reformation called the epistle of James a right epistle of straw, because there was no gospel in it. It wasn't that Luther, Luther's been misunderstood, I think, but Luther wasn't saying he didn't accept James in the canon of Scripture. He was just saying, it's not my favorite book. So how do you approach something like this? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And then in verse 25, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, you can approach this. A CIU student uh, texted me. Um, a couple of days ago, actually it was an email a couple of days ago, wanting me to have coffee with him because he was all bent out of shape about the whole issue of was it 70 disciples or was it 72 disciples? And I texted him back and said, I'm fine, let's have coffee, we'll talk about it, but you know, I'm not going to lose sleep over 70 or 72. If there were 72, there were definitely 70. And I, I have a degree in mathematics, so I'm good with it. I'm fine. I'm not going to waste any time on this. I said, you either approach Scripture looking for problems, and there are problems, or you can approach Scripture as Jesus approached Scripture when He said, the Scriptures cannot be broken. They cannot be torn apart. They are a whole, and they cohere together as one message. So, is James saying that you get into heaven by your good works? No, of course not. What he's saying is that true faith is evidenced by good works. Like, you know, I'm the token Presbyterian today. My, my African-American brothers preach in a different style, so it's not fair. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't even begin to imitate what they do, and it would, be, it would be faux if I even tried to. The Westminster Confession of Faith, to which I make a vow, a solemn vow, says about justification that we are justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by works. The works do not save. The works follow true faith. 
They fulfill true faith. It's like, it's like a flower in bud that opens up to demonstrate that that is a true flower, true faith. Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. I don't think I could do that. I have a son. I love him. Uh, he's smarter than I am. I would do anything for him within the royal law. Put a knife in his heart? No. Put a knife in his heart, trusting that God will raise him from the dead? Uh, no, I, no, I don't have that faith. But Abraham did. He was ready to plunge that knife into his son's, his, 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 his son's heart and kill him. That's faith. That is great faith. And it was accompanied by a willingness to do what he thought God wanted him to do. Like Rahab. Isn't it wonderful that we have a Rahab in the kingdom of God? I don't even want to begin to think what her lifestyle was. She, she's known as Rahab the harlot, the prostitute. What a terrible life she had. But she believed. And she hid those spies and kept them alive. She had faith that evidenced itself by works, works that could have killed her had they known. So, you can pit James against Paul But the early church decided, no, James was merely saying what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, that the Christian life has a shape. It has a contour. And it is evidenced by good works. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So the question… If someone came up to you to, and uh, they have a warrant for your arrest because you say you're a Christian and they're going to hand you this warrant, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You're brought before a tribunal the Almighty Judge, and the charge is that you profess to be a Christian. And the prosecuting lawyer comes with evidence. How much evidence do you think he has? Is he going to win this trial? That's the question that James 2 puts before us. We say we have faith, but are there works that demonstrate that saving faith in Jesus? Well, let's pray. Father, we, we are smitten 
The Holy Spirit convicts us. We say we have faith. Lord Jesus, we love you. We look to no one else. In you and you alone we put our trust, for now and forever, that we are reckoned to be righteous. We are reckoned to be law-keepers by faith alone, in Christ alone. But Lord, our hearts need to explode with gratitude to live for you every day, in every way, to demonstrate how much we love you. So help us, we pray. Forgive us our sins. Stay with us by our side as we make this pilgrimage, this journey to that fair city across the river. And bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.